Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Sarah Channing. I'm Legislative Director for Congressman Chris Van Hollen. Um, on behalf of the Bicameral and Bipartisan Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Caucus and its co-chairs, Congressman Van Hollen, Congressman Riker, Senator Reid, and Senator Crapo, welcome to our discussion of the 2016 Sustainable Energy Factbook today. Uh, thank you to the Business Council for Sustainable Energy and EESI for partnering to put this event on once again this year, and for all of our panelists who are here to kick off this discussion. Uh, the Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Caucus is a long-running bipartisan group that's committed to educating members about clean energy technology. These technologies represent an exciting sector of our economy and a critical part of our strategy to reduce emissions and power our world. If your boss would like to join the caucus, if you're from a member office and your boss is not already a member of the caucus, please feel free to get in touch with me, Sarah Jenning in Van Hollen's office. Uh, the Sustainable Energy Backbook that we'll be discussing today is an annual check-in on our progress uh, in the realm of clean energy and the distance that we still have to go. Uh, so thank you to Bloomberg New Energy Finance for your work on this report every year, and I look forward to a productive discussion today. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Sarah, and we want to thank the caucus, and we'd like to thank uh, EESI for their partnership in this event. I think this is uh, probably our 10th event that we've done tracking clean energy markets with the caucus, and it's just an excellent forum, and it's great to see all of you today. We're uh, partnering again with EESI on this event, and we're really fortunate to have their current chair here, just to spend a, a moment or two just to talk about EESI and the work that you do here on Capitol Hill, and then I will uh, talk a little bit about the Business Council. Thank you, Lisa. My name is Jared Blum. I serve as chair of EESI. Um, been privileged to do that for a number of years. I also serve on on Lisa's board and the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, so I've, I've been blessed with having these two great organizations as some of my, my activity. ESI was the visionary product of uh, about 30 years ago, bipartisan group of members of Congress. Many of you here have taken advantage of that decision over the years uh, to come to their briefings. We do about 20, 25 briefings a year on a whole range of topics, anything dealing with biofuels or climate change or sustainable transportation or sustainable communities. And I think you will find today that by the very fact that you have a standing room only group, it's clear that what's happened in the energy sector has been literally transformative over the last decade. And uh, the Business Council, together with the ESI, will be bringing you things that are very relevant and uh, up to date data. So take it away. Thank you. My name is Lisa Jacobson. I'm the president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. And I'll just take a moment to talk about the fact book and our organization. We are an industry trade association. We were founded in 1992, and we represent uh, the broad portfolio of clean energy technologies, products, and services. Our core sectors are renewable energy, natural gas, and energy efficiency. And I think what you'll hear today is these really are the growth sectors of the U.S. energy economy. And we're going to talk a little bit about how this portfolio is reliably and affordably uh, providing power to businesses and consumers throughout the country. 
We currently have associations and companies as members, and we are in every congressional district and every state. And if you want to learn more about our members, you can go onto our homepage of our website and you can click on to this interactive map we have and to learn about the major projects and assets of our membership. The Sustainable Energy in America Factbook, which is the foundation of our discussion today, is in its fourth year. And we are trying to pull together what we think are the seminal facts on US energy. We want to look at economic trends, deployment trends, um, and how this rapid transformation of our energy sector is unfolding. Colleen Regan, who was the lead analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance on this project, working in partnership with, um, I think, 20 analysts throughout the firm, uh, has put together what we call the Factbook, and it is available for free online um, with a lot of other graphics and other tools to help you know, drill into what is a really rich piece of work. The Factbook is a slide in a slide deck format, and I know I had a copy with me. Let's see if I can grab it quick. So, the Factbook which again, you can get on our website, is available for free. And what it is, is just a compilation of a range of facts and figures with analysis on what it means. So great for uh, talking points documents, great for speeches, uh, and, and any number of research needs that your offices might have. We try to make it really easy to understand and accessible. And again, it's not policy advocacy. It's not a vision. These are the facts. And much of our data focuses on the last seven or eight years. But for a number of sectors, and I think we'll see some on energy efficiency, we can go back decades to see what the trends are. So it's a tool to help you understand in a quick and easy format what really makes up the US energy sector, what's going on in the power sector and with electricity markets. And so I hope that you know, you'll find it useful to your work. These are just some images of the website, and you can get to this off of the Business Council's website or going directly onto the Factbook website. We produce this with both program dollars from the organization and also with supplemental support from a number of our members. And I want to thank all the sponsors that are listed up here. So I'm going to turn it over to Colleen at this point to talk about this findings from our 2016 Sustainable Energy in America Factbook. We released this in early February, and again, it's showing in real time with data and facts how the U.S. energy sector is being transformed and which are the drivers for those and what it means for the economy and for the sectors that the council works with. So with that, I'll turn it to Colleen. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you, everyone, for being here today. Thanks again to BCSE and to the sponsors for supporting this project once again. Uh, this is the fourth year now that we've done the Sustainable Energy in America Factbook. It was my first year working on it, um, but it was a really great project, very rewarding, and um, I, you know, we hope you really like the output. Um, as Lisa mentioned, it's a factbook. It's very facty. Um, there's nothing in here that is meant to be uh, telling people what they should do or um, what they should focus on or where we think is the best area for growth or anything. Really what we're looking back on is what's happened in 2015 and how does that fit into larger trends and what's going on in the clean energy space. 
So accordingly, I'm going to talk a lot about 2015 today, um, but we'll also put that into context. Um, just real quick, I think what's important um, for this, uh, for understanding what we're talking about here, is what's included in the factbook. Um, so we focus on renewables, energy efficiency, and natural gas. Um, there are some areas that are considered clean energy, which we might not focus on quite so much. So just so you know, when I talk about sustainable energy today, this is what I'm, what I'm speaking to. Um, we use a lot of publicly available data, also some research that um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance has done in-house as well um, to support this. Um, so again, this is just a breakdown of what's covered. Uh, now gas, CCS, um, traditional renewable energy technologies, and then we also focus on the demand side as well as um, some transport when we look at alternatively fuel vehicles. Uh, so without any further ado, this is just, um, I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes, giving you an overview of what we think are the real highlights to take out away from this year's factbook, and then we'll turn it over to the panel um, so you can hear from some of the BCSD members. Um, so just going to go first through 2015, a number of milestones or records that we set in 2015. Then I'll put that into a broader context of how the U.S. is changing how it consumes and produces energy. Um, I'll talk about an era of low energy prices. We've been making all these changes, and yet we actually haven't seen huge increases in consumer bills. In fact, we've actually seen bills falling across much of the country. Um, and then a little bit of an outlook. And the outlook, again, isn't necessarily what we think should happen, but what happened in 2015 that maybe suggests that we're continuing on this trajectory of changing how we consume and produce energy. Uh, so first up, what, what did we see in 2015? What was notable about 2015? I'll talk about a number of records here. So on the broadest sense uh, within the energy spectrum, we were the most energy productive that we have ever been. So in other words, we grew our economy without significantly growing the amount of energy that we consume. And we've been doing that for quite some time. So in 2015, we grew our economy by 2.4%. Um, and we grew the amount of energy consumption by only 0.1%. So in other words, we grew our energy productivity by 2.3% in 2015. So the, the green line is showing you our GDP index to 1990 levels. The gray line is showing you our primary energy consumption. So that includes not only power, but also all the oil that we're consuming to uh, fuel our transport fleet, as well as the natural gas that's being burned to heat our buildings, et cetera. So all of the energy that we're consuming, we've basically been flat since about 2000. We've been bumping around a little bit, but even though we're continually growing our GDP every year, our primary energy consumption has effectively been flat for about the last 15 years. Um, and that was even more impressive in 2015. And one of the reasons, there's a number of reasons that, that this has happened. I'm going to highlight one of them, which is that U.S. utilities are spending more on energy efficiency programs. Um, so from 2006-2011, utility expenditure on energy efficiency programs grew by about 25% every year. Um, there was a bit of a lull in 2011 to 2013, but that picked up again in 2014. So the utilities are, again, spending more on energy efficiency programs in every year, and that's paying off. That's one of the reasons we've seen that we've been able to grow our economy while consuming less energy. A second record that we set in 2015 was the U.S. produced more energy, uh, more shale gas and unconventional gas domestically than ever before. So we've produced more um, natural gas at home than we've ever seen. 
Um, as you can see, the gray area is our shale clays. Um, basically, that's been the huge source of growth here. Um, and one of the other takeaways from this slide is that black line is showing you gas-directed rig counts. So how many rigs are we actually deploying <coughs> our, um, at the natural gas clays? That's falling. So we're becoming much more efficient um, when it comes to extracting natural gas as well. And this has directly led to uh, record number three, which is coal retirements. So all of this natural gas at home has meant that natural gas is extremely cheap, and that's meant real um, and serious competition for the nation's coal-fired power plant. And in 2015, as a result of that, we saw 14 gigawatts of coal-fired power plants uh, disconnect from the grid. We have another 17 gigawatts that reported to the EIA that they were going to disconnect between 2016 and 2020. So just in that six-year span, 31 gigawatts of coal scheduled to fall offline. Um, and a lot of this has to do with that competition from low-priced natural gas. Some of it also has to do with age. These coal boilers tend to be between 50 and 60 years age, which is about the typical lifetime. So they're due to retire anyways. Um, and one of the reasons that 2015 in and of itself was so big is because that was when the mercury and air toxic standards um, effectively took effect. effect. Um, and so that sort of placed a final deadline on a lot of these plants that maybe because of these economic challenges we're, we're going to retire anyways. So that's one of the reasons we saw 2015 was the biggest year we've ever seen for coal-fired power plant retirements. Another record that we set was in the solar PV sector. So on all subsectors of solar PV, we installed record amounts. That's on the left, you're looking at uh, utility scale solar, so we're talking about um, over a megawatt each project. And then on the right, you're looking at residential and commercial, uh, generally rooftop solar. So in all of these sectors, we saw the largest amount installed um, ever. The year-on-year -year growth was particularly notable in the residential sector, that's the gray on the right, um, increased from 1.2 gigawatts in 2014 to 1.7 uh, gigawatts in, in 2015. Um, and then when you come to what's happened with retail and wholesale power prices, um, we also set sort of a near-term record. Um, these are in real terms. And in real terms, wholesale prices across the country in 2015 were the lowest they've been in over 10 years. And in some areas of the country, on the retail power side, um, in real terms, we were also the lowest we've been in 10 years. Across most of the country, um, power prices remain well below the peak of 2008 to 2009. And we've been able to do this while we are um, greening our grid, as it were. So um, it's a great takeaway here as well. And then I'll point to one more record that we set in 2015, which had to do with corporations. So one of the things that we're seeing is we're getting big businesses getting more and more involved in what's going on on the clean power space. So on the left, we're tracking how many gigawatts of renewables have been contracted uh, through power purchase agreements um, by corporations. So you'll see from 2013 to 2014 to 2015, more than double the amount that corporations are signing on to every year. Uh, most of that has been wind, and also most of that has been Google. Uh, Google has signed to date um, 1.7 gigawatts uh, with 
clean energy, uh, about 1.6 gigawatts of that is um, with wind, and I believe it's a, about a 70 megawatt solar project. And they're far and away number one in the space. Uh, Amazon is number two, and they have about a third contracted relative to Google. So Google's the big story here, but it's not just tech companies. We also saw Target sign on for 100 megawatts of solar to be installed on the rooftops of their big box stores around the country. So it's a trend which is certainly um, growing. Okay, so I just talked about all these records, and how does that sort of fit into what's going on with the U.S. energy uh, sector as a whole. This is looking back at there are renewable energy installations across um, not basically all clean energy um, since 2008. So as you can see, we have more or less um, been growing every year with the exception of 2012 to 2013. Um, and the reason there's that big drop off there, 2012 to 2013, was the expiration of the production tax credit for wind. So a lot of this boom and bust that you're seeing the, in the blue, which is wind, is what happens when the PTC expires and then it's renewed. Um, so that's the boom and bust there. But solar, as I highlighted earlier, has been growing steadily every year as the economics um, have improved. So 2015 was the second largest year for renewable installations that we've ever seen. Um, 16.4 gigawatts, uh, second only to that 2012 year. Again, very PPC driven in 2012. Um, and of course, as we're adding more and more renewables to our grid, we're getting more and more generation from renewables as well. The left is showing you hydro versus non-hydro renewables. And the reason why we're breaking it out that way is because hydro is, of course, very seasonal. Um, so in 2011, we had a great hydro year. Then we had a lot of production from uh, renewables. But with the drought out west, we've seen hydro taper off. The good news is 2016 looks like it's going to be a lot better with that El Nino year. Um, so on the right, we break out just the non-hydro portion. You'll see steady growth there year on year on year. And that's allowed um, non-hydro renewables to basically hit um, to here. Um, 8% of total generation in 2015. With hydro, we're at 13% for renewables. That's grown from only 8% for both of them in 2007. Um, and one of the other course um, noteworthy trends here is if you just look out over those past nine years, you've seen um, coal, which is the black, fall off very steadily. And natural gas become a larger and larger share due to what I was showing you earlier with the natural gas production. Um, and what was really notable in 2015 was that really for the first time ever, we saw natural gas and coal providing equal amounts of power in the U.S., something we've never seen before. Um, coal was as much as 50% of the U.S. power sector in 2005. Um, and in fact, the 33%, so these numbers when we did the fact book were only through October I now have more updated numbers, which show that coal was just exactly 33% U.S. power in 2015. It's coal's lowest share of the power sector um, that I can ever find. EIA data goes back to 1949. Coal has been larger than about 35-40% the entire time. This is the smallest role coal has ever played in the U.S. power sector. And. One thing that a lot of people say, okay, so what does this mean for U.S. greenhouse gas emissions? So we're just talking about the power sector here. 
um, the power sector was basically uh, about 19% below uh, 2005 levels in 2015. So as I mentioned, I've got slightly updated numbers which show less coal uh, burn than we were even anticipating when we made this back book. So in fact, we're better than 18% below 2005 levels in 2015. And the reason why that 2005 level is notable is because it's the peak in U.S. power sector emissions and also is the baseline for the Clean Power Plan and the other targets that the Obama administration has put forward, such as Paris. So the Clean Power Plan, when it was issued last August, said that um, it would cut emissions 32% from 2005 levels by 2030. Well, if we're now already 19% below 2005 levels, I would say we're clearly well on our way um, to hitting that target. Still work to be done, of course. And then another trend, um, which of course was a little bit of a hiccup in 2015. Um, we didn't set a record when it came to gasoline consumption in 2015, which is a good thing from a clean energy perspective. Um, but we did tick up from 2014 levels, uh, as we saw lower natural gas price, uh, lower excuse me, uh, prices of the pump, gasoline prices, led to consumers buying less efficient cars. So if you look on the right, that's showing you the average miles per gallon of vehicles sold in the U.S., and it was steadily increasing, and then in 2015, it sort of leveled off. Um, and that has led to more gasoline consumption in a year-on-year term. But we still remain well below that 2008 peak of um, gasoline consumption, and we think that that upward trajectory in MPGs of vehicles sold will start increasing uh, again as of course, the corporate average fuel economy standards, the uh, federal fuel efficiency standards, they are still driving this long-term change and improvement. Um, so we're thinking this would probably just be a one to two year blip, but time will tell. Um, and then finally, what's going on with energy prices? So I already showed you that we, we are um, lower than 2008, 2009 across almost the entire country for wholesale and retail power prices in real terms. Um, but within the power sector also, what's going on there um, and how is that creating change? So here we're looking at the cost of generating electricity in the US from natural gas versus coal. So natural gas is the green line, coal is the gray line. Um, and this is one of the drivers of the, that coal retirement slide I showed you earlier. So if you look back to 2005, um, the green line was well above that gray line for the entire country. Um, but then in 2008, you had the economic recession, prices collapsed for both fuels, but coal sort of rebounded and natural gas didn't because that's when you really had shale production ramping up. It was growing by about 35% a year at that point in time. Um, and that basically meant we all of a sudden had all of this domestic production, all of the supply, and of course, economics 101, you have more supply, it pushes prices down. So we've basically seen um, in 2012 and then now in 2015, on average across the country, it is cheaper to burn gas in a, in a power plant than it is to burn coal, um, which just turns on its head the old um, truism that it's cheaper to run coal. You burn coal, you have coal because it's cheap. But in fact, across a lot of the country now, that's no longer the case. Um, it's very regional um, in the Powder River Basin, in the Northwest, it probably is still cheaper to burn coal. But in um, 
the Appalachian Basin to a lot cheaper to burn gas. And then when it comes to wind and solar, uh, this is looking at, and I realize these graphs are probably a little bit hard to see, but you're looking at, uh, the dots are showing you where long-term contracts for wind farms have been signed. Um, the dotted line is showing you sort of a trajectory. And then the underlying gray jagged lines are showing you wholesale power prices. So that's just kind of a, a point of reference. Um, on the left, we're looking at wind farms in MISO. MISO is one of the windiest areas of the country. It's the Midwest. And then on the right, we're looking at the Southwest Power Pool. Again, one of the windiest areas of the country. You're talking about wind farms being signed um, in Oklahoma, for example, here. Um, and so what you can see is that as forest time has gone on, these power produce agreements have um, come in lower and lower and lower. And what's notable, especially on SVP, you can see it more clearly, is that those PPAs are being signed below the wholesale power price. In other words, it makes a lot of sense for utilities and, and for corporations to be signing long-term agreements uh, for wind because it, the economics are there. Um, on the solar side, this is also looking at long-term power purchase agreements that have been signed by, off, by utilities and other off-takers. Um, this is showing you across the country, so we've colored the bubbles by region. Um, the yellow is California, which is where you would expect a lot of these power purchase agreements for solar have been signed. Um, and I, there's a couple takeaways. I really like this slide. Um, I didn't make it, but I really like it. Um, the sign is telling you the, the size of the um, solar project as well. Um, two, there's two things that I take away from this. Obviously, over time, prices have come down. You saw in California, most of those PPAs were being signed over $100 a megawatt hour back in, from 2008 to 2010. A lot of those were being um, signed because of the California Renewable Portfolio Standard. Um, but as time has gone on, of course, the prices have fallen. They're now coming in the $40 to $60 range. We actually saw a $37 PPA signed by the city of Palo Alto um, in early 2016. But the other takeaway that I like here is that you're seeing more diversity of regions. So it used to be all California all the time. And now you're seeing a lot of other areas of the country beginning to build solar. So we saw um, some Texas come in in 2011 or so, but we're seeing uh, now the Southeast is signing solar uh, PPAs. The Midwest is signing solar PPAs. Oklahoma is signing solar PPAs. So it's becoming um, a more national trend as prices have fallen. Um, and then for a quick outlook, just um, I just have a couple more slides, and then we'll turn it over to the panel. Um, this is just putting it, the US into context of what's gone on in clean energy globally. So at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, we track all investment in clean energy. Um, this definition is slightly different from earlier slides, because it doesn't include natural gas. Um, but we're looking at all investment into all of the typical renewables, as well as low carbon technologies and energy efficiency, smart grid, et cetera. Um, and as you can see, in worldwide, we set a record of 329 billion going into um, clean energy. In the US, it was um, a nice uptick over 2014 levels, which was also an uptick over 2013 levels. 
Um, and it's the highest we've seen since 2011. 2011 was um, a lot driven by the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. Um, so it was a great year for clean energy investment in the U.S. We are, of course, dwarfed by China, um, which had $111 billion, was basically a third of global investment in clean energy. Um, but I don't show this to show you that you know, China is investing a lot more than we are. They have a lot of other concerns, such as um, pollution in a lot of their cities, and they need to be investing a lot in clean energy right now. It's also part of their five-year plan. Um, but I think this is showing what's to come. So investment is a leading indicator of what we're going to see for installations of um, clean energy over the next couple of years. So I think this suggests that you know, the pipeline looks healthy for 2016, for 2017, um, clean energy in the US as well. And we're still the number two destination in the world for clean energy investment, and it's not government mandated. Um, Federal support of clean energy, I don't need to tell any of you this. This is just a quick summary of uh, what happened with the production tax credit and the investment tax credit uh, extensions in December. Um, and these are also very positive for uh, future investments. They provide more policy certainty to the industry. So you, since it's a five-year extension, you won't see some of that boom and bust that we saw in the wind energy industry um, in the past several years. The Clean Power Plan, um, obviously there's some uncertainty over what's going to happen with the Clean Power Plan. It lies in the court's hands. Um, but nonetheless, the Clean Power Plan um, is basically, you can consider it sort of a long-term driver that is going to underlie some of the cha these changes in the U.S. power sector. Um, we think that the U.S. probably looks, looks pretty good as far as decarbonizing its power sector goes. I showed that slide to you earlier, already 19% below 2005 levels. Um, so, I mean, I, I show this because it was obviously very important happening in 2015, um, but it's kind of hard to say what will happen here. It's anybody's guess. Um, Nonetheless, I think it's important, and it could potentially help the U.S. to cut its emissions 32% below 2005 by 2030. Um, and then one sort of hiccup I wanted to highlight, um, depending on whose side of the story you're on, is what's going on with net energy metering. So I talked about federal policy, but obviously state policies are hugely important uh, for the rollout of clean energy. We saw that with the California... Uh, solar power purchase agreements. Those were driven by uh, state-level policy. Um, so net energy metering is very important to the economics of distributed solar, and we saw a number of changes happening in 2015. Um, most famously, $50 fee per month in Arizona. Um, Nevada also uh, changed the rates that it is going to offer to net energy metered customers. Um, Massachusetts hit its net energy metering cap. They actually just lifted that. Um, so there's a number of developments that are important to be aware of. They can be sort of a headwind for solar PV. Um, but these, um, these policies are constantly being argued over and are always in flux. So it's not necessarily, I'm not, I'm not saying like these are all bad, because they're not. Um, but these are important to be aware of when you're thinking about how distributed solar is going to develop in states. Um, and then finally, the U.S. Emissions Pledge in Paris. 
So um, Secretary Kerry just went and signed the Paris Agreement in New York last week. Um, and as part of that, the U.S. has pledged to cut their emissions 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. Um, we ran two scenarios of U.S. emissions um, using primarily uh, forecasts by the EIA as well as the State Department. Um, so our goal with the fact book is not really to show you our view of the world. Um, we rather just show, you know, here's, here's one view of the world. Um, and they both sort of suggest that the U.S. has a little bit more work to do. Um, this work doesn't incorporate, for example, the methane targets um, or the upcoming uh, fuel standards for heavy-duty vehicles, and nonetheless um, suggests that probably some more policies will need to be implemented to ensure that we really hit this, this target. Um, and this target, I think of it also as sort of um, a driver of continued decarbonization within the U.S. economy. Um, and a nice summary slide, in case you wanted to take down any of those numbers. Um, and that's, that's all I have for you today. I think I'll turn it over to the panel. Um, do you want to do questions at the end? I think we will, because okay. I know we're probably going to lose people as we get to the top of the hour, so I'd love to get the yeah. panel's comments. But stick, Definitely. please stay with us. Oh, I'm staying. You can oh, take you me off. my seat. So, yeah. mm -hmm. I'll stand. I don't mind standing. Um, thank you, Colleen. That was excellent. And yes, please. Now we're going to take the opportunity to hear from some of the industries that were covered in the fact book and get their reactions to the trends that they're seeing in the marketplace. So we've got an excellent panel here. We've got Liz Tate from Johnson Controls, Owen Smith from Ingersoll Rand and the Train Company. Catherine Clay from the American Gas Association, Catherine Gensler from the Solar Energy Industries Association, Jeff Leahy from the National Hydropower Association, and Paula Seuss with Covanta. I think everyone has their, their full bios uh, on the back of the agenda, so I encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, to get us started, I'm going to give an opportunity for uh, everyone to talk a little bit about you know, what they see as key findings in the fact from their industry's perspective and also introduce themselves a little bit more. So I'm going to start first with our efficiency um, panelists. I'll, I'll start with Liz Tate and then Owen, I'll, I'll go to you. And I know and some of you have selected some slides that, you know, if you'd like me to put them behind you while you're making some comments, I'm, I'm ready to do so. You just let me know when, when you want to do that. So Liz, please. I'd like my slides. Okay. <laughs> um, here we go. Great. Hi, I'm Liz Tate with Johnson Controls. If you're unfamiliar with Johnson Controls, uh, we're a large uh, technology and energy services company. Uh, we both provide energy storage technologies. We also do whole building retrofits and heating and cooling and HVAC upgrades. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, Owen and I are going to tag teams to the efficiency two points. I want to talk a little bit about this slide, because I think this is my favorite slide in the deck. Uh, what it shows is that over the last 20 years, We've seen this monumental occurrence, which is the divergence between the energy we use in the U.S. and our GDP. Traditional economic theory holds that you need to use more energy to grow your GDP, and we've proved that that's not the case in the U.S. And we've done this through effective policy, smart policies that drive investment in energy efficiency. ACEEE uh, estimates that 40% of this trend comes from structural changes in our economy, 
such as the shift away from manufacturing, but that 60% of this divergence comes from us using energy better, getting more energy bang for our kilowatt hour, so to speak. You go to the next slide. Who remembers what happened up here in 2007? Anyone from the audience? You, sir. Vehicle standards, clean energy. Right, so we, we passed a major comprehensive energy bill in 2007 that touched a variety of aspects of the economy and brought in a diverse set of stakeholders to work on better energy policies. Um, so what we see here is this massive uptick after we passed in 2005 and 2007 in the investment across the economy. So policy works, policy drives investments. And that's kind of my key takeaway of what we can see from these slides. I know data is very important to all of you and your bosses. I encourage you to look through the efficiency slides to really see how effective policies can be able to great investment in our economy and fast improvements. And Owen's going to talk a little bit about the specific policies. Owen, thank you. Thanks. Uh, so Owen Smith, Ingersoll Rand. Um, Ingersoll Rand's a uh, diverse, fairly diverse company. We intersect with uh, you know the same space that Johnson Controls is in, and part of our business uh, predominantly our train uh, brand, which is best known as an HVAC manufacturing company, but also an energy services company. So building efficiency and energy services are a pretty big part of our business. And our other brands are uh, Thermo King, which is big for transport refrigeration, uh, you know, uh, addressing food waste issues and uh, things of that sort. Um, and Club Car and the Ingersoll Rand brand are other uh, uh, kind of lines of business, so industrial processes and mobility solutions. So around the, um, uh, you know, the efficiency space here, um, you know, as Liz was saying, there's uh, a lot, well, first of all, I'd just say this fact book, really, I mean, it's a great resource uh, no matter what your specific uh, interest is, so whatever you're trying to understand, uh, you know, Colleen did a great job of hitting the highlights, but there's a ton, really a ton of great slides in here that have um, you know, some really great information. Um, so this slide is just uh, to give you an indication of one of the key, uh, or a couple of the key types of policy drivers that have really been instrumental in driving the investment in energy efficiency that Liz was showing on her prior, on the prior slide. So this is showing decoupling and uh, energy efficiency resource standards, or EARS uh, standards. Uh, so decoupling is uh, a policy that decouples a utility's um, uh, revenues from its profits. It, it kind of breaks it out, it breaks a utility out of the traditional build more, sell more uh, business model, you know, build more power plants, sell more kilowatt hours, and, and uh, uh, kind of removes that incentive, which is really important for, um, for, for you know, enabling efficiency to, to take root. Um, and an energy efficiency resource standard is, is kind of similar in that uh, same kind of uh, motivation, but it's, a, it's giving utilities a target to uh, achieve year-over-year -year, uh, efficiency gains uh, by uh, providing incentives for cost-effective efficiency uh, products and you know, all kind of under rigorous uh, cost-effectiveness tests and providing uh, consumers just that incremental motivation that they're going um, to need to adopt more efficient equipment. These have been uh, you know, very prevalent. Um, in the natural gas space, probably for a little longer than they have been in the uh, the electricity space. But you see, um, you know, the combination of both decoupling and, and uh, ear standards has grown quite a bit um, over the last several years. Well, going back a few years, we had a lot of growth, and you can see in the last few years that's kind of leveled off. 
uh, but nonetheless, it's a very important you know, policy driver uh, that gives some real structure to, um, to driving investment in energy efficiency. And then the, the next slide here is just a, a totally other, different way of driving it, uh, investment in efficiency. This is uh, building disclosure and benchmarking uh, practices. So this, this is just uh, you know, not a requirement to make an investment, but a requirement to um, uh, disclose uh, building energy use. And uh, you can see some of the uh, states and major cities that have adopted these policies over time. Uh, and so we've seen some nice growth here. Uh, and these kinds of practices give transparency to the marketplace and, uh, and again, motivate uh, investment. And what's really encouraging about this is that uh, even though we've seen some substantial growth, that uh, access on the right-hand side shows that we're still under 8% of uh, market penetration of building disclosures in commercial office uh, space. So there's a whole lot of untapped potential. And there's also other slides in the deck that kind of show the same story for Energy Star certified space, same story. And a lot of growth recently, but a whole lot of untapped potential that remains to um, uh, to again drive uh, investment in efficiency. So what's the x-axis on, on this one? The x-axis is, uh, yeah, thanks. That's uh, it's, uh, uh, million, millions of square feet of um, floor space. Now the other x-axis. Uh, the But time. that adoption or? Uh, yes, it's. Uh, yeah, it, when it got adopted, right? Yeah, when, yeah so, right, so you, so see, you see different cities or states uh, adopting the, the policy through time. Thank you. Sorry, Thank you. We're going to come back to you. Um, next, we're going to focus a little bit on natural gas. So I'm going to introduce Catherine Clay with the American Gas Association. Great. Uh, good afternoon. And uh, let me thank all of you for being here. And also, of course, thank the Business Council and um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance for the, the tremendous work that they do putting the fact book together every year. Uh, so this is kind of a lightning round, uh, so I'll be fast. Uh, we, uh, we saw some uh, slides previously that Colleen presented that showed you how natural gas is very important and a growing uh, importance to the power generation sector. Uh, but overall, natural gas is about 25% of the primary energy that drives our economy. And in addition to uh, power gen, uh, it's also used directly, both at the industrial side, at commercial sites, at residences. And the slide that I'd like to speak to that's in the back uh, is focused on that residential sector. So uh, if uh, those of you that might, might have gas in your own home, uh, we're talking about the gas that you use to heat your home, provide hot water, uh, other appliances. And uh, the good news is that over the past several years, uh, in fact, if we would go back in time, it's in fact over 40 years, the number of households that use natural gas in this country has been growing steadily. But at the same time, because of energy efficiency gains, because we have tighter homes and more efficient appliances, the total amount of natural gas that we use in that sector for residential has stayed relatively flat. In fact, almost exactly flat. Um, now, this slide uh, tells that story going back to 1995. And uh, the scale, um, let me speak a little bit about the scale because uh, it, it might at first look like that solid line is a fit to that green line. It, it's actually not. That solid line is showing you the number of residences, the number of customers uh, that are served by natural gas. And it's gone up from about 53 million in 1995 to uh, closing in on, uh, on uh, uh, 68 or so million uh, estimated in 2015. So we're looking at about a 20, almost 25% increase in the number of customers 
And yet over that same time period, uh, if you were to fit that line, that green line, it's about flat. Right? So uh, we're seeing uh, that story that we heard earlier from Colleen's remarks that we're able to, uh, we're able to grow but we're, uh, in terms of the services that we're providing, but we're able to do it with the same amount of natural gas. So that's quite a compelling story. Uh, it's a very good news story for the country because in the same time period, we've also found out that we are abundant in natural gas. Since 2008, our knowledge of our resource space because of the shale gas revolution has meant that we have over 200 years supply. Uh, so the good news is American households are being served by natural gas and that that is a secure and safe resource uh, for the country going forward. Uh, so thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you, Catherine. Now we're going to focus a few comments from some of our renewable energy uh, sectors that are here with us today. And first will be Catherine Gensler, then Paula Seuss, and then Jeff Leahy. So, Catherine. Well, thanks everyone for being here. Uh, as you can see on the slide, and I'm delighted to say that we are the little yellow bars, not so little in, in recent years. Um, so easy to see even at the back of the room. The big story here is growth, 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 right? As Colleen pointed out, we've seen tremendous and record growth for 2015 in all three sectors, residential, commercial, and utility-scale solar. For the first time ever, we hit that two gigawatt mark for residential customers, which means that more than ever before, residential homeowners are making a choice to go solar in the U.S. Since 2008, if you can look that far back, um, some of you maybe didn't have full-time employment back then, but I did. That's when I started at SIA. We did about 300 megawatts of solar that year. Last year, as you can see, we did 7.3 gigawatts. That is about 240 times more solar. I wish I would have thought to negotiate a salary increase on this kind of deployment scale. I wouldn't have to be here today. Um, but, but really tremendous growth. And that really does come from underlying stable policies, both at the federal level and the state level, that are helping to drive the marketplace through increased competition and decreasing prices. As many of you were involved with at the end of last year, the Omnibus Appropriations Bill did contain a five-year extension of the Solar Investment Tax Credit. I want to put into perspective what that five-year extension means. Throughout recorded history, we've got about 27 gigawatts of grid-connected solar to the end of 2015. Between today or early this year, and the end of 2020, we are looking to add 20 gigawatts more. So almost the doubling the installed capacity of solar in the next few years. In addition, the 208,000 Americans currently employed in solar is also predicted to double by 2020 up to about 400,000 employees. So we have literally companies working in every state in the country to bring solar to homeowners, business owners, and utility customers. Happy to take questions of you. My name is Paula Seuss, and I work for Covanta. Um, <laughs> we are a, uh, we work in public-private partnerships with local government, where we manage their post-recycled waste and we turn it into base loads. Um, electricity and in that process where you turn up uh, that waste that we convert from landfills, we, um, we mitigate one ton below zero greenhouse gas emissions. 
Um, and, and I think I'll, although not the end, this was a good line because it would have been the last person um, that for Jeff, but you know, the conversation started off with policy matters, and I'll echo that because when you look at the, the great deployment that wind and solar has seen and the really great uh, strides energy, energy efficiency has made, our story is kind of the flip of that, which is what happens when you have a failure of public policy support. And this slide right here shows you that when you look at waste to energy, we're comparable as a, as a um, levelized cost of electricity on a levelized cost of electricity basis with um, wind and solar, yet our deployment has been very, very close to nothing in the United States. By contrast, public policy in Europe and in Asia has um, has recognized and, and focused on the value um, that, that waste energy brings in their early days of getting Kyoto. Um, China's been a, a bunch of different other reasons, including the fact that you can't see the building next to you. Um, but when you look at China, they have 200, 181 plants currently today generating 11,000 gigawatts of electricity. And by 2026, they plan to double both the number of plants they have and the uh, the number of gigawatts of electricity that they're producing. And they're doing that by replacing some of their older fossil generation, um, both locationally as well as just from, a, from an energy uh, supply perspective. Europe, um, part of their most um, successful uh, reduction in greenhouse gases to meet their Kyoto compliance has been to shift away from landfilling and to use more waste energy and recycling, and they are deploying about 1.1 billion euros annually, the UK is, till 2020 in order to help continue to meet this requirement. So public policy matters, and we in the United States are really um, leading technology in greenhouse gas um, reduction gains, including kind of only more methane. Um, by not taking advantage of the technology here. We landfill 64% of our waste in this country, which is a tragic story. We use 7% waste to energy. We look at Denmark, 45% waste to energy, 40% rough numbers of, of recycling. Germany only landfills 1% of its trash. So we have a real opportunity in the United States that public policy hasn't really caught up with, and Europe and Asia are kind of leading, leading us in the dust, if you will. So now I'm going to yeah, please. And I think I have a slide too. So uh, I'm Jeff Lahan with the National Hydropower Association. Uh, our association represents all water power technologies, hydro, pump storage, as well as marine and uh, energy and hydrokinetics. So what I liked about this slide is that it told a lot of different parts of the story that I'd like to get out. The first and foremost is that it busts the myth that hydropower is a tapped out resource. So as you look at that uh, graph on the left, um, the EIA, in some of its analysis recently, has said hydro would only grow by 1.5 gigawatts in like the next 15 or 20 years. And you can see we did 1.4 gigawatts in the last five years alone. So clearly this idea that there is no more hydro potential in this country is, is one that uh, isn't borne out by the facts, uh, hence the fact book. Um, so where is that growth going to come from? It's going to come from additions of capacity and operational improvements at existing hydro facilities. We have 100 gigawatts of installed capacity in the hydro system in the US. That includes 22 gigawatts of pump storage. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities already on the existing system to get more out of that system. 
uh, it's also going to come from uh, non-powered dams. We have about 80,000 dams in this country. Only 3% generate electricity. 3%. So not all of those dams are right necessarily for a variety of reasons to add power generation to. But there is a huge opportunity, and there's a factoid in the slide as well that, that talks about uh, the top 100 dams could add 8 gigawatts of power just in those opportunities alone. And that's infrastructure that's going to be in place because it was built for other purposes like flood control, water supply, irrigation, and navigation. Um, the other big uh, opportunity is in pump storage. Um, as we all know, as we move to more, more wind and solar and we take more uh, coal off of the grid, uh, there is this need for more baseload technology as well as technologies that can um, provide ancillary grid services. Um, and pump storage is 97% of energy storage in the United States uh, already. So, uh, but there are opportunities to build more pump storage. As you can see again in the, in the notes section, there was a recent, uh, recent projects uh, that have been licensed by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And most of the new projects that we see that people want to build are in California and the Pacific Northwest and the western part of the United States. I wanted to just quickly mention that um, we are very interested in policy, because policy does matter. The House and Senate energy bills both have significant improvements uh, in the development timeline for hydropower. When it takes 10 years to relicense an existing hydropower facility or a new project, obviously we have a hard time competing with other resources uh, because of that. And then lastly, I would mention um, the tax uh, issues. Um, while wind and solar did get multiple year extensions of the tax incentives, the rest of the renewable energy family did not. So our tax ex extenders expire at the end of 2016. So whether that's waste to energy, hydropower, um, biomass, and geothermal, uh, we are all looking for, and we will see, as you can see in this slide too, in those uh, projects that were coming up for relicensing, if you look at 2013 and 2015, that sort of bust scenario, uh, boom and bust scenario, which you see in the wind industry, is also happening in our industry, obviously, though at a little bit of a, a smaller scale. And then I will end by saying that the Department of Energy is launching a significant comprehensive report on the future of hydropower. It's going to come out in July. This is going to be very similar to the report that they did for the wind industry. It's over 500 pages. I know you won't read 500 pages. But there is a great executive summary that's going to come out with that and a lot of individual fact sheets to talk about the benefits of both the existing hydropower system and future growth opportunities. And I'll be there. Well, that was tre tremendous. And you're right, it really was um, a lightning round. And I appreciate everybody being you know, so courteous to your other panelists. I was going to do one kind of general question, and then I'm going to open it up to everybody in the audience. So I just want to give you a moment or two as you're listening to the responses to prepare your questions, because we'd like to turn it over to you. Um, some of you have touched on this. I mean, obviously, uh, policy does matter. And I think others can amplify that message. And clearly, the fact book data shows it. But as Jeff alluded to, we've got a number of pieces of legislation that are pending in Congress that can impact the energy and power sectors as a whole, and a real opportunity, we hope, to improve things as it relates to getting more clean energy into the mix. So we want to be a resource to you as an organization, the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. Also, obviously, any of our members would serve as resources to you. And what's different about us versus other groups is that we are a business organization. We're very diverse in our membership. 
Um, but we come together to believe that we can do uh, more with clean energy, and as the fact book has shown, we can do this affordably. So it's practical, it's reliable, and it's affordable, and there's a portfolio to choose from. So I encourage you to come to us if, if you have questions about what's in the energy bill or what might be considered on the tax front. We'll be working very hard on both of those areas to get stuff done this session. So my question to the panel um, that we'll do and then turn it to you is, from your standpoint, what are the biggest opportunities or challenges you face in the next several years as your businesses and sectors aim to grow? So maybe we'll start here with Liz and just go down with any comments people have. Sure. I think the largest challenge is how do we drive private sector investment in energy efficiency through good public policy? Uh, you know, in the energy bill um, that passed the Senate, there's a number of improvements to the performance contracting statute. Uh, which would help uh, help us calculate or better account uh, what we call operations and maintenance savings, which is a simple way of explaining that is if you leave your window open, it can be the best window in the world, but you're letting in all the air. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of savings that we get through processes and operations and maintenance, not necessarily just technology improvements. Uh, and there's another, a number of other improvements to that statute, maybe Ellen will touch on or not. <laughs> but, um, there's also a number of other things in that bill, such as smart buildings. We need smart buildings to connect to smart grids. And uh, we need the federal government to be taking a forward path, both on, both on smart building technology, but also on energy storage technology, which I see as a huge improvement, or huge opportunity, sorry, for our industry. And really, you know, we hope that the federal government can take a lead on commercialization of a lot of this technology. And you know, how do we, how do we commercialize it so that the private sector can take it up and invest in it? Um, I think the other challenge is, again, you know, how do we lead the government forward? Um, in the energy bill on the Senate side, uh, there's 10-year targets for um, energy intensity reduction from the federal government. These are critically important. Even if the government doesn't need that goal every year, it's critically important that we improve our federal buildings because this is where we can see what's possible. So I think those are the sort of opportunities and challenges, and you know, we, we hope that the House will take that up and help us drive this forward. Um, I think that, you know, looking forward into another administration and another Congress, once we get through this bill, we should look forward to see if we can be even more aggressive. And, you know, again, it's all about driving investment through smart policy. Thanks. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just make a couple of comments. So one uh, so would be around, um, kind of back to the, the, the slides that I was talking about before, but one would be, um, increasing transparency of energy use. Um, so, uh, just making it uh, making it very clear what uh, you know policies that can that can drive um, drive that transparency of what an energy what a building's energy use is can uh, bring awareness to the building owners and to the tenants uh, and, and drive investment. So that's that's one thing. And then uh, you know energy services performance contracting is a uh, a big segment of our business, and uh, there's uh, you know, the energy bill includes provisions to expand market opportunities for that, which is tremendous, in particular for public buildings um, that can um, you know, make investments uh, through performance contracts with, uh, with companies like ours to uh, uh, improve their energy use. So that's um, uh, that's very important to us. And then also, I think one of the things that's highlighted by the the diversity of the the panelists here is that these sectors are you know. They, we've uh, categorized them in, in such a way that they, the lines actually get pretty blurry where uh, demand actually can start to look like supply in the electricity system 
and uh, buildings and building, tech, building energy technologies uh, are increasingly sophisticated and buildings as a, as a result are able to provide more and more to the electricity system in terms of being responsive to their needs uh, through load curtailment, non-sacrificial uh, curtailment types of solutions that are enabled by uh, energy storage technologies, not just uh, electrical energy storage, all of the, the comments that Jeff was making about the, you know, the base of energy storage that's out there today, um, but you know, also thinking about things like thermal energy storage um, as well. And so there's a lot of capabilities that are growing for buildings to be able to supply services to the electricity system. And so that's a very interesting uh, growth opportunity for our company. Thank you. Catherine. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll build on the energy efficiency uh, theme. And it's a it's an ongoing challenge. It's also it's a current challenge for natural gas. And, and that is to effectively communicate that direct use of natural gas is inherently energy efficient. Uh, and too many of our policies uh, don't uh, recognize that. Uh, and what, what we're talking about with that inherent efficiency is that if you think not just about that box in front of you, that, that on-site energy use, but you think about where the energy comes from. It makes a lot more sense uh, in an efficiency sense, in a carbon emission sense, if you use as much of that energy for productive services as possible. And if you have applications that can be served using natural gas directly on site, rather than burning a fuel upstream, generating electricity, losing energy in that conversion, losing more energy in the transmission, you often come out a lot further ahead with just use that fuel in place. And if that can be natural gas, uh, that's often the most efficient choice. Uh, that's not obvious. Uh, I think often it's, it's lost in our policy conversations. And it's an important role that, um, that we see for our association is continuing to communicate the inherent energy efficiency advantage of using natural gas. For the solar industry, I think we want to sort of think about two different themes here. One is just reducing the friction in permitting. And that happens at every scale, whether you are a homeowner and you need somebody from the building inspections office to come out and sign off on your permit. You need the local utility to come out and sign off on your permit. And let me tell you, they're really enthusiastic about doing that for you, right at the top of their list. Making sure that we see similar gains in the permitting process and in the soft costs that we have seen in reducing the equipment costs over the last several years. So since 2004 or so, uh, we've seen panel prices come down about 70%. Overall installed costs have come down commensurate about 70%. So it is much cheaper to go solar now than it used to be, but there is still a lot of friction in the whole transaction, whether that's on the financing side or the paperwork pushing side of things. Um, similarly, focus on deployment, I think we really need to make sure that we are covering all of the different sectors and ensuring that there are both utility programs and solar offer programs, and a focus from the federal government, too, in, in making sure that solar really is for everyone. Um, we have a very inclusive policy about making sure that we are in, engaging and really pulling into the solar industry um, minorities, women, and veterans into the solar workforce. Similarly, we want to make sure that when solar is deployed, it is available to not only homeowners, but also apartment dwellers, 
condo dwellers, people who can't make decisions about actually what happens on their roof having access to solar, low-income communities is a huge deal and really making sure that solar is available to everyone, uh, whether it's on their property or not. So I'll say at a high level, it's really about placing a value on the benefits of hydro as a renewable. Um, that doesn't always happen, and hydro sometimes separated out as not being a, a renewable, or, and that's mainly because at a time when many of the renewables um, provisions and policies were being put in place, there was this differentiation between existing and new, and there was a lot of existing hydro and not a lot of existing other renewables. Well, as the graphs have shown, a lot of existing of everybody now, and so um, we're really trying to figure out how we can um, uh, make that distinction go away, and also to uh, value the grid benefits of hydro, and that comes from what I talked about, permitting and regulatory improvements and tax, but it's also in, in various market recognition, particularly of those grid benefits, energy storage, uh, voltage control, frequency control, black star capability. For those of you who were on the East Coast in 2003, the Canadian-US uh, task force on the blackout uh, basically found that it was hydropower plants that got the grid back up and running, but not everybody knows that. So um, putting all of that together and making sure that that all gets valued and not taken for granted is really probably our biggest issue. <coughs> Excuse me. And for us, I think that we are unique in that half of the waste energy facilities in the US are owned by local governments, and so for from our perspective, local governments have often been on the front lines of driving sustainable policy with their local dollars and how they've invested in infrastructure. Um, and, and more local governments would like to continue to do that, unfortunately, with the uncertainty in the market, with the uncertainty in the power plan, with the uncertainty in intermittent tax credits that don't necessarily help, and public policy that may be a little bit too too narrowly focused in its benefit, not necessarily in its design, um, I think that uh, it, it's, it's preventing us from being able to take advantage of local government being able to do, in some places where the state governments won't do, which is say that we want to be as sustainable as possible, we want to invest our money here, um, but there's just, there's just too many hurdles um, and complexities uh, for, for them to be able to really do the things that they want to do at the local level. And so for us, having a, a broader, more comprehensive federal policy, with its tax policy, energy policy, um, uh, can really help with can really help with that. And the lefties, local governments, um, really put their money where their 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 investments um, into the investments that they want to have. Thanks, everybody. So now, as promised, time to at least two hands. And three hands. We'll start with those three. I'm not four. I see four. So uh, yeah, I feel like I'm up. <laughs> Hopefully I do. Uh, so I think um, this gentleman up here will make the first question. And if I could ask you to please introduce yourself. Thank you. And we're going to try to get, um, why don't we do your question, and then we'll see how it goes. I might need to do a few at one time. So go ahead. Alden Meyer, Union of Concerned Scientists, thanks very much for this presentation. I, overall, it's a very positive trend, a very positive report. One of the few sour notes in Colleen's presentation was the slide on the growing trend in some states to erect barriers to net metering. And so the question I'd have for Colleen is, does Bloomberg New Energy Finance have any analysis of what the implications of those barriers might be for future penetration of deployment of renewable Technologies. Your slide mentioned companies pulling out of Nevada because that's probably the worst of the 
the policies at the state level, but you have assessments for other states what this might mean. And maybe for Catherine, what are the sort of responses of SIA, the other renewable trade associations, and the companies that you represent dealing with this trend? Because it clearly threatens to undermine the intent of Congress with the extension of the PTC and ITC to get more benefits for Americans from the deployment of these technologies. Do you have a strategy to try to negotiate with the states or with Edison Electric or NARIC or others or to get some kind of standardization at the federal level around this because it is a, it is a concern. Okay, I'll, I'll be quick. I want I want Catherine to really take this one. Um, <laughs> so, I'm not a solar analyst. I'm more of a U.S. power analyst. So I look more broadly than specifically at net energy metering policies in the U.S. Um, but definitely, so Nevada's a big um, a big area in which we think that there will be a lot slower, um, at least in the in the near term. We've seen a huge fall off in. Um, in residents is actually looking to install solar. So we, we do track what we call construction monitor data, which reports people asking for permits um, to install rooftop solar, and it basically fell off a cliff at the beginning of 2016 in Nevada. Um, so as you would expect, especially with Solar City and Sunrun saying they're leaving the state. Um, basically, in Arizona, you're not really going to see anything as long as that $50 a month fee remains on the books. Um, I think more generally, the outlook, um, we, we are seeing the idea of switching from retail rate, the full retail rate, to something closer to a wholesale rate um, happen in other states as well. And that necessarily will change the, the economics. Um, so I think in, in New York, there's been some discussion of lowering the, uh, the amount that is paid out in Massachusetts, they've recently agreed not on the residential side, but more on the CNI side, to also um, change the rate at which um, owners of rooftop solar are remunerated for the power that they provide. So it's not—it's it, becoming a broader trend. I think the jury's still out on what is the real rate that should be paid to solar, and, and certainly when you reduce the rate, it reduces the attractiveness. Um, so I would I would say this is headwinds for PV in, in most, if not all, states that are changing their net energy metering policies. I don't have any numbers for you in terms of how much this cuts our forecast in Massachusetts, for example. But um, I'd be happy to put you in touch with our uh, DG analyst. I'll give you my card. I would start off by saying that net energy metering is. It's a term that has a lot of details buried in it, depending on what state or what utility service territory you're working in. So it's not a uniform policy across all 50 states. Uh, so to that extent, it means different things, and it means different levels of remuneration depending on where you are. Uh, we have certainly seen a, a growing trend in sort of spreading the myth of cost shifts around the country. That is definitely troubling to us. Every place that has done a good cost-benefit analysis, a good one, not a shy one, <laughs> has shown actually that DG Solar on balance is about comparable in terms of the benefits it brings to the grid and the costs that it is incurring onto the system. So you know, to the extent that there are interesting, important, in-depth conversations going on about net mirroring policy, 
I think those should be encouraged and everyone should come to the table with a lot of information to discuss. The size of the market and sort of what the solar penetration looks like has really been the driver of who's having these conversations. Um, and as we look at places that are implementing different policy formats, things that are not full on retail net metering, as has been sort of the recent trend, we're looking at states like Hawaii, California, New York. Those were the first movers in deployment of solar in the first place, and they're also the first movers in terms of crafting a new policy structure for what do you do when you get to 5%, 10% penetration of solar across your distribution system. Would it be appropriate for a state like my home state of Wisconsin to start throwing out net metering policies? Probably not, because they've just barely gotten off the ground with solar implementation and deployment in the first place. It's not something that, that is probably likely uh, a reasonable conversation to be had at this point. So a lot of it has to do with timing. Uh, and then on, on Arizona, which has taken up until Nevada, took, took over the spotlight from Arizona in terms of net metering fights, um, just today actually it was announced that there's a bit of a ceasefire in the Arizona net metering fight currently ongoing between specific solar companies and the incumbent utility there. So uh, there are conversations and perhaps it is going to be kind of in the form of a negotiated settlement or some kind of mediation that could lead to a new policy outcome for, for that sort of survey. Well, thank you, Catherine. I want to just, yeah. Can I also just sure. say something? I just wanted to make a point that this, that this issue of net energy metering or the broader issue of utility rate design it's not just a solar issue, and it's it's really important to our business as well. If you think about um, our business uh, in residential air conditioning, we tend to have a, a stronger market presence in the, the higher efficiency units uh, than, the, than the minimum standard. And so if someone, uh, if you're looking at utility rate design and, and raising fixed charges, for instance, that all of a sudden makes uh, you know, a high efficiency air conditioning system a lot less attractive and, and we're going to see more customers just opt for the cheap stuff, you know, whatever the, the you know, minimum building code requirement is, as opposed to you know, a high seer type of unit. So it is a concerning uh, you know, phenomenon for our business as well. No, thank you, and that's a really important point. I just want—I know some of you, you know, we're losing a few of our audience members, which is we've been with you for a while, and I, I know we have got a few more questions. But I want to introduce Ruth McCormick, who is our head of federal and state policy, um, and just make sure everyone knows her. Um, we've got Carol Werner, who has arrived, who's the head of EESI, and Carol, if you want to call out any of your staff members that are here, that could be resources to those in the audience. Um, uh, Amory, thank you. And so, Miguel, who is Great. Well, so not to interrupt the questions, but before you left, I just wanted to make sure that you knew um, where some resources were. And since we're breaking from it, I want to thank Tess Riley for helping to organize this event today. Um, in partnership with ESI, so great job, thank you, Tess. Okay, so we had a question here. We had a gentleman here, and then I think you were actually next. So this gentleman, and then you'll be next, and then over here. No, you're good. Okay, so we have two more at least, and others. We have we have the room till two. We've got plenty of time. I just wanted to make sure that we introduced some of the staff that's here. Uh, thanks, Lisa. Hi, I'm David Nemso at the uh, U.S. Department of Energy. 
I want to I want to tease out some more the issue of distributed versus centralized uh, sustainable energy. So for the efficiency guys, that's easy. You're only distributed. The rest of you have two sides. Jeff, you were talking about gigawatt-sized pumped hydro. So I want to focus on distributed. First, ask a fact question, and then and then a judgment question. So Colleen and, and Lisa, do do we know? And I'm sorry, I missed the beginning of this. It seems to us that the world's moving more towards distributed resources. Is that? Did you quantify that in this, or is that is that just an impression? Or do we have some numbers? And then after that, I want to ask the panelists about how do we accelerate? Uh, how do we ensure that the world is ready for all the distributed resources that you can throw at us? Go ahead. I'm so let's see. Um, okay. Uh, so we don't necessarily break it down versus distributed versus centralized, but I can call out the distributed portion of this. So um, most of these installations that we're looking at here are utility scale. Uh, but we do include, so of that 7.3 gigawatts of solar PV that was installed in 2015, uh, 2.9 gigawatts of it was distributed solar. So um, we are definitely seeing, and I can go back to the, um, oh, the solar one. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, here. Um, so here you're looking at the rollout of utility scale solar on the left, and then distributed solar on the right. Um, and obviously, if you, can, if you just follow that sort of trend line, um, it was very, very steep for utility-scale solar at the beginning, but it's sort of leveled off a little bit. We had 4.1 gigawatts in 2014, 4.4 gigawatts in 2015. Not huge year-on-year growth, um, but still growing. Um, in the residential and commercial sector, you're really seeing that ramp up continue. Um, so I think it, it looks for distributed solar to become a larger and larger share of the overall solar pie as, as time goes on. And then if I, if I could ask the panelists, if I could ask a, a precise question, I'll try to make it precise. So I'm a Fed, so I want to ask you about what the Feds can do and how the Feds are doing, Department of Energy, or whoever, however you want to answer, to, uh, uh, as I say, do the best we can to accept uh, distributed. So is that valuation, something like that, valuing uh, distributed? Um, uh, is the grid ready for it? Is the uh, again so if, if you could, I'd rather have a, a Fed centric answer than a PUC centric answer. If you don't mind, <laughs> maybe that you know. So this is this is kind of close. Um, for us, our facilities are located by the, the feedstock as well as by the energy is is used. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> One of the challenges that we face, and I'm not sure where you get the answer to this, uh, this challenge is that local governments, as I said, own half these facilities. They generally, they in essence, own their own renewable baseload power plant. They also are, are fairly large users of electricity. They have wastewater treatment facilities. We have Miami-Dade has an airport. They would like to be able to use that power themselves or for their local military installation. So they like to use that power themselves, and you can't. Um, because of uh, because of, of uh, wheeling, um, because of, of just some of the local transportation distribution laws, and so whether or not that's a a federal problem or a state problem, 
it's just a nut that we haven't been able to crack. And it's very, very frustrating because there's an enormous difference between what some of these facilities are paid, these local governments are paid for the power versus what they have to pay um, to provide power to their own other infrastructure that they have. So that's that's the challenge that we face. Is you've got a plant, you have an end user in the plant, you own both of them, but you can't connect it to a local. Do you want to map the DG, the distribution grid and power flows on it? I think that would be extremely illuminating for all of us in the industry. Uh, Do you map the existing or some future? No, the existing. Sure. Yes, yes. And then extra appropriations for the future. But, I mean, seriously, that is a, a huge information source that is lacking right now, and most of the people who it is shocking how little information most utilities even have about power flows on their distribution grid, let alone their willingness to share it with the whole rest of the world. Uh, the other piece of it, though, is what do we need beyond information on the technology side? And the electric infrastructure in this country is miserably old, way older than all of us in this room. And we just don't have a grid that is currently flexible enough to easily handle all of the oncoming distribution resources. And that means you know, having power flows that go two directions, having a lot of inverters, and sort of just a lot of transformer capabilities to be moving power around the neighborhood rather than just bringing it in from elsewhere and kind of dropping it off at, at the major intersection. So I think some of that technology, but also it requires changes in best practices in operations. So we don't just have a technology problem. We can solve some of those problems today by making operational changes in how everybody does business. But people have been doing business this way for the last 100 years. And so that becomes a, a pretty big barrier as well. So maybe a couple of things. So <clears throat> I just wanted to put it out there, I think when everybody thinks about hydro, they think Hoover, they think, uh, you know, uh, NIFA and, and Niagara. Uh, but 70% of the FERC uh, licensed projects are under 10 megawatts. Um, so there's a significant small hydro component. There's a lot of small hydro. In 2013, we passed a bill for small conduit projects under 5 megawatts, and there's been five dozen of those built over the last three years. Um, pump storage, we're looking at modular pump storage, anywhere from the 40 megawatt uh, size, so more along the side of the battery size uh, pump storage, but still fairly large. MHK technologies are often very modular, uh, smaller as well. But I would say also, you know, there are trends, you know, taking a step back from some of this, the, the transmission issues too are, and the operational issues that people are dealing with, and I have a lot of utilities in my membership. You know, in California, I have members who are pumping water up in the middle of the day for their pump storage. You used to pump up at night and release the water into the lower reservoir during the day when you needed to generate. Well, now they're actually pumping during the day. That flips the technology on its head. That never happened before. So there are all of these different things that are happening, and some of them are operational changes that can be made, but then the question is, are you going to be paid for those operational changes under how you're uh, FERC license currently is structured in, in all the market. I don't think the markets yet have also caught up to the changes that are happening in that grid system. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Sure. I think on the valuation, this is critical. 
Um, we tend to value technology based on energy produced or energy avoided. Um, but we need better valuation on you know, what is the value of power conditioning? What is the value of grid management, of load management? Um, you know, I'm specifically thinking about energy storage technologies, for example. You know, how do we value the resiliency and grid interaction uh, capabilities of behind the meter storage um, you know, when it's not specifically in an energy-avoided or produced sense, but there is a real value there. Um, I think you know, to overcoming this sort of valuation, there's also some regulatory issues. You know, right now, in a performance contract, uh, we can't put solar, for example, in federal projects without jumping through an insane amount of legal hoops uh, because of the way that OMB structures leasing and ownership requirements of solar. So there's some real um, regulatory hurdles that make it more difficult to put in distributed generation in our projects. You said what I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> Price signals for ancillary services. The grid needs flexibility you know, with the growth of distributed uh, and renewable resources. What the grid needs most is more flexibility, and you can get that with price signals, so valuation studies what, uh, what ancillary services are really uh, worth to the grid is, is a, a great place to start. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in the front row, did you still want to ask your question? Uh, sure. <laughs> Very patient. So, uh, a lot of higher uh, efficiency, and you know, we have where we are, and we have where we're looking to go, and as well, sometimes there's a big gap there, and trying to, to bridge, you know, where, how to get there. Uh, so, with your industry, like, uh, what? Especially with you know, possible impending climate change, what do you think could be a you know, quick way to bridge those gaps? Um, you know, without getting bogged down, maybe something would be great. I think adoption of existing technologies. Um, I think we we like to focus on sort of what the next set of technologies are, but we have technologies right now. I think all of our industries have available technologies right now that with greater adoption could save incredible amounts of energy. Um, we make an advanced battery, for example, that is in 60% of the market in uh, European cars, there's only 10% of the market in the US. It would cut 5% uh, out of both fuel and emissions for US cars, right? So 5% of 90%, because EVs are only about 10% of the US market, it's a huge amount. So the technology we have today uh, same thing goes for, as I said, energy storage, for HVAC equipment, um, for chilling and heating equipment. We have high efficiency technologies that all of our, at least all of our the efficiency companies make now. So policies that would spur people to buy those best efficiency ones are not the minimum standard furnace, but the high efficiency standard furnace or the high efficiency chiller. Um, so adoption of you know what we have, you know, we need to look forward, but there's an incredible wealth of technology available now. I would just add that there's a need to be able to institute policies that allow for long-term thinking, right? So when we look at financing hydropower projects, if you look at any hydropower project, these are, I have member companies that have projects that have been running for over 100 years. Now, they've had upgrades and refurbishments along the way, but they're still running from the 1890s. But, so these projects are economic over the long term. That's why Washington, Idaho, Oregon, between the federal and private hydro systems have the lowest cost of electricity in the nation. 
but yet at the same time, if we're building new or we're doing some of these refurbishments, the upfront costs are very high, and so your payback period isn't you know until seven or ten years out. So, you know, we have this situation where we have a really great long-term asset, but we can't get the planning and we can't get the policies in place to align to allow for that long-term investment to happen because everybody wants a short-term, quick return. So, how do we uh, how do we address that? And if I, could, I think this is this is both forward thinking and it's also right under our notes right now. When you think about um, doing things more sustainably, there's an enormous one of the cool slides in the Bloomberg report is one that talks about the energy efficiency gains that we have from recycling aluminum. We get a lot of energy efficiency gains from recycling a lot of stuff, and we just don't do that in this country. And so, um, so if you not only energy savings, but um, uh, energy, more energy use as well, because there's other things you can do with material where you can generate electricity, not just waste of energy, but anaerobic digestion and other stuff. So it shouldn't be a new idea, but we only recycle 26% of our waste in this country, so it is, it needs to be a new idea because we don't do anything about it. And then when you look at, you know, EPA had done, the part of the clean power plan was the methane, right? So the lot of focus has been on natural gas, methane, almost none has been on landfill methane. This is the third largest source of methane in this country. So I, I just think that thinking outside of the box, not necessarily thinking new and futuristic, is, is another thing. Well, that would actually bring my second question, uh, specifically for Catherine's plan and you all. Um, do you think that uh, methane regulation would actually end up being cycling on your industries? Uh, is there a way to reduce methane without it? That's a great question. Uh, so. Um, so the American Gas Association represents the distributors. So we're the, that last link in the, the value chain to the consumers. And for our systems, natural gas is actually a good news story uh, that uh, natural gas uh, emissions from distribution systems have consistently been declining over the last several years. And uh, uh, in fact, um, recent work that we did with EDF demonstrate that because we have been renewing our systems over the last two decades, that the emissions have, have decreased by perhaps 30%, uh, 20 to 30% is the range, uh, since the 1990s. So uh, now what's what's happening there? Why is that occurring? And the reason is that in the name of safety and reliability, there's been a renewed effort in the last two decades. There's been an acceleration of effort to replace older materials, so cast iron, unprotected bare steel, replacing those older systems with the, the new generation of plastics. And although we've been doing that, uh, working with our regulators, it's always got to be uh, approved by the regulators to do system upgrades, um, we've done it in the name of safety and reliability, but this important co-benefit of reducing methane emissions has come along for the ride, and that's it's a really important uh, element. Uh, and for us, our greenhouse gas mitigation <clears throat> is in part based on the fact that methane generated with this material that otherwise goes to landfill doesn't go there. So we have argued uh, for much stronger methane regulations and landfills. And in fact, our comments to EPA um, on their proposed rules was to do a type program for um, for landfills. And, and uh, unfortunately, um, there was a real missed opportunity to do something there. So we we would very much welcome and have advocated for stronger uh, methane uh, landfill regulations. Thank you. Let's see if there's any more questions in the room. This gentleman. Okay. 
Thank you. Please introduce yourself. Thank you. My name is Ed Coyle. Uh, thank you all for being here. It's a fascinating obstacle each of you faces. Uh, clearly, you've made your points about your uh, various aspects of the dilemmas you face in trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. I, I kind of had two questions. One is, we spoke about the decline in the amount of energy being consumed, and yet the amount of energy we're using is going up. Uh, I guess that indicates some efficiencies along the way. My first question is, what about the supply side? Are, by the fact that we're at declining coal power output, uh, does that put a uh, holders or missing demand equation? Uh, as, where's that power going to come from? Is there, is there enough efficient, or is, has the efficiency driven capacity in other areas that the decline in coal is irrelevant? Sure. Um, so when we, we talk about coal shrinking um, as far as its role in the power sector goes, that's being replaced by natural gas for the most part. There has been growth in renewables as well. Um, so we saw from the graph, renewables grew from 8% to about 14% of the U.S. Um, power sector from 2007 to 2015. Um, so some growth in renewables, but really outside growth in natural gas, which is just really stealing that their share of the pie from coal. So there's plenty of natural gas in the U.S. right now, um, more than enough to displace that lost coal generation, um, and then and then some, which is why producers are really looking to export natural gas right now to actually help boost natural gas prices. Um, so I'm not concerned at all about not having enough supply to replace that. Um, it does certainly help that there's been a lot of energy efficiency um, on the power side. The slide I showed you with energy efficiency had to do with overall energy demand, so not just within the power sector, but that story is also being told within the power sector, too. So again, in, in um, 2015, we had GDP increasing by about 2.5%, and, a half percent, and um, total power sector generation was about flat. So that helps. So you feel there's ample generation trouble? Yes. I would also say that we have a huge opportunity for more efficiency in our country. Uh, we, you know, buildings in the U.S. consume about 40% of the U.S. Uh, energy. Uh, buildings are, you know, we lose about half the energy that goes into buildings. There are huge segments of uh, our economy where there are just so much opportunity for increased energy efficiency. Um, I think we really only sort of tap the tip of the iceberg there. And energy efficiency is a very cheap and effective way to avoid the need for new capacity. So the more efficient we make our buildings, the more efficient we make our technologies, um, the more the fewer additional uh, power plants we need. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some states that are aggressively tackling energy efficiency so that they can avoid the need for increased capacity. So you know, I think as we get more efficient and we have more uh, renewables and more natural gas and more of everything, um, I think we will need what we need. It's too bad David left from the DOE because um, there's also efficiencies on the power generation side, right? So, you know, like I said, I have long-lived assets 
that's a good thing, right? Because they are running consistently for 40, 50 years in some cases, but you do lose efficiencies over time. When you put upgraded uh, equipment in, you gain those efficiencies back. So you can generate more power with the use of less water, um, and you can, use, you can get more generation out of those projects than you otherwise would have had, even from the original design of those projects. If, if R&D is, is subsidized and continue to be a priority of the Department of Energy across our, across our technologies. Well, that was the other side of my question. I, nobody has said anything about research. Um, and is anybody, I, and maybe it isn't your purview, uh, but I was curious about what's going on in the research side to support or develop further the efforts that you have from. Well, for us, I mean, we're, and I think for all of our technologies, we're all very invested in the EERE program at the Department of Energy. Um, if we have seen a tremendous increase in the DOE water power program. Uh, back in 2007, our program was zeroed out. And even before 2007, we were getting $4 million a year in the hydropower program. $4 million. We are the largest renewable energy resource, and we are the smallest program at the Department of Energy in terms of research and development. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, it was mentioned earlier, well, um, you know, you're a, you're a proven resource, you're an existing resource, we want to go with what's new. Well, I always say, you know, we didn't stop looking at advancements in the auto industry in the 1970s, and, you know, with the Pinto, you know, we, we said we can, we can do better, and we did do better. So I think there is an important case to be made. Yes, we have to invest in new technologies and green hydrokinetics in my space is one of those areas, but we can also be looking at advancements in the existing uh, technologies that we have and make them better. Thank you. Thank you. And I think at this point I'd like to leave a few minutes for people if they have questions for the panelists to do that up here. So on behalf of uh, EESI and the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, thank you all for being with us today and for the good conversation.